Yeah. All right. Well, I hate to say it, but on a world spinning its way to damnation amidst the fear and despair of a broken human race, who is left to fight for what's good and pure and to try and engage in meaningful and difficult conversation? That's right. It's night rule. My name is Isaac. I'm uh, joined again by good friend of the show, Professor Adnan Hussein of Queen's University. Hello, Adnan. Hello, Adnan. Thank you so much for coming back on uh, Mike. I know you've had a long day. Oh, yeah. Well, but it's good to be with you and good to talk. Um, there's a lot been going on. And um, we had part one of why Canada is actually uh, an evil place. Yeah. Um, and then we have part two just a week uh, following the news of the 215 Indigenous children in the mass grave of a residential school. A week later, um, you know, there's a killing of uh, four members of a Muslim family in London, Ontario, on the street, just taking a walk. Three yeah, generations. Three, three generations. Yeah. 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 With the one, the five, five-year-old son, grandson, the, the sole survivor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's right. A boy. Um, I think he's just, like, yeah, he's, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, it was a shock in the sense that any sudden, violent, tragic event um, is a shock. It obviously causes um, a great amount of grief and pain, and um, but it's not actually that surprising, I guess, in some ways, because... Well, we've, we've seen this kind of random-style yeah. terrorist attack in Canada before. I mean, it's happened in yeah. our recent past. Yeah, and by by using a vehicle, uh, there was the incel, uh, you know, attack yeah. in Toronto just a few years ago. And we've seen similar attacks in France, in the UK. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this this is a new a new form of of domestic terrorism that has has kind of really sprung about in the last five to ten years, perpetuated by a number of groups. In this case, you know, I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna dignify this individual by calling him a suspect. He's a murderer. Yeah. You know, he's been charged with multiple counts of murder. And quite frankly, the police don't charge like, you know, 99% of the time if someone's charged with this kind of thing, they get convicted because they don't charge people unless they have a solid case. I mean, this is a public event. This guy is an obvious neo-Nazi. You know, he's either mentally ill or just a monstrously disgusting and horrible human being. Um well, I wonder, um, you know, it's interesting because apparently there's not a lot of background on social media or like a me social media presence to be able to track some kind of radicalization, which is one theory that people like is that, mm. you know, they like a narrative of like, you know, something was a trigger or at a certain point over time, you know, there are developments and changes that put them over the edge. And they haven't been able to really write that because... He seems to have very little uh, social media presence, unlike Alexander Bissonnette, uh, who was 26 years old at the time in 2017 when he went into, uh, you know, the Islamic Cultural Center of Quebec in, you know, Quebec City and killed six uh, worshippers and wounded something like 16, 17 um, others there in the mosque. He had a social media presence. He mm -hmm. was... Uh, sympathetic uh, to white nationalist um, ideologies on sites and pro-Trump and so on. And in some ways, it was easy ideologically to 
uh, isolate him from the rest of Canadian society. Now, mm. I think that this is a bit of a false division, but it was possible to say he was somehow affiliated or associated with these fringe right-wing groups. It just so happens mm. there are 200 or so of these right-wing fringe groups. In, in yeah, Canada. and well, I mean, what are we doing not addressing the fact that there's right-wing fucking terrorist groups in our midst? Like, are they, is, are, is, are the cops fucking knocking down some neo-Nazi club's door today in response to this? Because as far as I'm concerned, maybe yeah. that's what they should be fucking doing. Well, maybe these groups need to know if yeah. this kind of shit goes down, man, mm-hmm. you're going to pay a price. I mean, that well, might sound a little harsh, but I, I, I'm well, a little tired of thoughts and prayers. I want to yeah, think outside well, the box a little bit here, Adnan. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, this is an interesting issue or problem. And there have been, obviously, it's been called terrorism by, you know, the Prime Minister Trudeau. He said this. Um, and of course, uh, you have to say that that's certainly true. It uh, has struck fear into communities. It is about a kind of political purpose, uh, you know, to achieve, um, you know, um, you know, an anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim type of of politics. Um, so it is certainly that. But the question is, is, should it be tried under the terrorism laws as a mm. as a terrorism charge? And you know, there's different opinions on this. I mean, one is let's end the hypocrisy. You know, where it's been mm. exclusively. Muslims almost 98% of those who have been charged under these terrorism laws are Muslim. Um, And let's like, you know, actually apply it in a case where it's clearly an act of terrorism as well. So that's one school Mm. of thought. But, you know, on the other hand, um, most of the people almost all, all but two, I think, of the Muslims who were charged under the Terrorism Act, um, were not, you know, it wasn't for something that they had actually Yet was it committed. like this entrapment style shit? Yeah, yeah like yeah, what the fuck? Like the they pre-crime. did. Uh, that's rampant in the states too. I mean, if if I that's if right. I go online and meet someone and like it, you know introduce the idea of them of planting a pipe bomb somewhere and saying I can get you the materials, I'll pay you to do it, and then all of a sudden I'm they're going to get charged with a crime. Like it's it's this these entrapment stings they pull. Yeah, I mean, really, like the whole the whole question of these like new terrorism laws, we have to look back at the age in which these were enacted, because mm-hmm. prior to that, terrorism was actually treated like uh, a kind of a, uh, as a as a as a law enforcement issue as opposed to a military issue. Right. And in a weird way, like the new terrorism laws are actually more reflective of a militarization of the problem in a weird way, but through an arm of through a, through kind of a new pseudo arm of law enforcement. Like we definitely have to disentangle that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, there are distinct distinctions to be drawn. I think what is troublesome to me is that, you know, calls to make an example of this uh, perpetrator uh, may not really undermine the overall uh, racialized uh, system of surveillance and security apparatus and the way it operates uh, to inculcate and apply a kind of Islamophobic logic and to associate Muslims with terrorism in a climate of fear. Um, you know, the difference is that the fear from this right-wing ultra-nationalist white supremacist orientation is less about the terrorism than it is um, uh, you know, about uh, the way in which the Muslim is seen as a threat to Canadian culture and values mm-hmm. as this, you know, uh, inimical, um, you know, interloper. Um, mm-hmm. 
So you, but they both of them produce a climate of fear, right? And mm -hmm. and that that has these that has all kinds of consequences. And so the you know I don't think there's any likelihood, despite you know recognizing that the far right uh, groups can be a threat or a danger, that they've put them under the same kind of scrutiny, the same kind of surveillance, the same kind of entrapment, the same kind of like you know, uh, peace bond, terrorism, peace bonds that basically make it impossible to, you know, put up bail, you know, when you've been charged. Yeah, um, let's let's harass some Nazis at the airports, too. How about, you know? I mean, you know, but they won't, you know, really be able to do that and they won't no. do that. And so as a result, if you have one person getting charged under it because there's so much mm. hue and cry, it really just provides cover for the racialized system when I would much rather us band together, show solidarity to dismantle that kind of apparatus of the mm -hmm. state and these laws that are oppressive that often, you know, you find one group that uh, there's enough hostility, there's enough racism, they're vulnerable enough that you can apply it. And then the state manages to expand even further mm, the way absolutely. it applies it. And in fact, actually, of course, in the long history, this is what connects these two events. I mean, one one week is the aborigine, you know, uh, the indigenous, you know, residential schools, you know, the, the state has obviously you know, oppressed and suppressed um, indigenous peoples uh, and, you know, the RCMP and, you know, these other arms of the state have used all kinds of horrible tactics um, on indigenous people. And we see how, likewise, in, when we talk about systemic Islamophobia, that these kinds of terrorism laws um, have been used uh, to criminalize essentially Muslim uh, Muslim religious life, you know, um, with these narratives of radicalization. If you're a practicing, you know, there was one radicalization seminar um, that basically used an image of a woman wearing hijab as an emblem of, you know, radicalization. That if you are basically practicing the religion in a visible way, you are essentially a potential terrorist a violent threat and so a picture of a nun why don't you put up a picture of a nun i mean they're both wearing headpiece you know <laughs> i mean i think i 100 i completely agree and i'm 100 on board for actually thinking about how do we um how do we dismantle some of these systems i mean one thing i've been thinking a lot about in the wake of this is this really normative concept of canada you know when i grew up in in junior high school and high school you know, we learned about how, you know, Canada is different than the States. It's a melting pot in the States. Canada's much more cultural mosaic was the term they used. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And, you know, I'm wondering right now, as I, as I think about how many unearthed mass graves are present in the country, yeah. how that fucking cultural mosaic is looking as like a family of four or four people from a family were mowed down by uh, a sadistic psychopath. Mm -hmm. And even just the coverage coming out of it, too, we still can't accept, you know, we have people writing op-eds in major national newspapers saying we're not willing to accept that Canada's a racist country or we're not willing to accept that it's, it's as racist as people are saying it is. Meanwhile, 80 plus unearthed mass graves out there. Mm -hmm. And I feel as though, you know, in, well, in the that's same just in the past, you know, that's, that's just in the past. That's part of our shameful history. Yes, yes. Um, and there's I really feel like there's an extremely opportunistic and extremely self-serving um, activity going on at the core of this. I mean, I think about the Liberal Party, you know, often termed uh, the, the natural governing party of Canada in power, you know, 70, 80% of our history. And as uh, like an emblem of uh, white settler, settler colonial hegemony or white kind of Canadian political culture, you know, I really feel like 
you can look at white Canadians and say that they're kind of a liberal party of Canada in the sense that as long as we're kind of nice, you know, and we can have a good conversation over a coffee and we'll, we can talk with anyone around the table over like a, some sort of sweet square or nicely prepared meal, you know, as long as it's well catered and as long as we're nice, these nice liberal Canadians, um, somehow like that's enough. And, and even expanding it outward, you know, other countries will say, like, I, honestly, I think at times people in other countries have thought, I wish we could be more like a tolerant country like Canada. They seem like such a tolerant yeah. country. They seem so progressive. That's That should be our goal. Mm -hmm. But I feel as though at the core of that liberalism is a really dark and dirty secret, which is that it, that liberalism serves to deflect from really addressing the root problems and really confronting the fact that there is a dominant group that has maintained cultural and political hegemony yes. and is not interested in relinquishing it. I mean, there's a reason why the fucking liberal government of Justin Trudeau is not rushing to dig up those bodies because right. it implicates them. It implicates probably political allies. Yeah. You know, it would be very problematic for them to go into Ontario and say, hey, you disgusting people that did some of this stuff that are just fucking living your nice secluded, like retire, you're having your nice retirement. We're going to fucking throw you in jail. Like that would be a huge problem for the liberal party of Canada. And yeah. I think for white Canadians, we need to confront the fact that just being nice liberals is, is not enough. And in fact, might actually be counterproductive and more insidious than more overt forms of racism. Yeah, well, you said it. I mean, you know, um, Justin Trudeau, for example, is not rushing either to go confront uh, Quebec uh, provincial elites uh, on Bill 21, for example. And um, it's is that the headscarf one? Yeah, that's the yeah. The, the the law of la law of uh, laicite, right? The secularism yeah. law. That is basically uh, not dissimilar from what they've done in France. I mean, very the, similar. the fact that people cannot be drawing a connection between these two things is kind <laughs> well, of pretty shocking to me. You know, well, yeah. The people and also, are, like, I let's just... look at maybe some of the wars of aggression that have taken place over the last 20 years. Yeah. I mean, like, like we can't we can't talk about Islamophobia in Canada outside of things like the war on terror, can we? I mean, is no. don't you think in some way this painting of all Muslims as terrorists across the board, a billion plus people really serves to justify a war of aggression and conquest ultimately, right? Like that's really the first thing that it's achieving or seeking to achieve, right. whether consciously or unconsciously, correct? No, I completely agree. I mean, I think that's the thing is that even if you have some of these measures that people are hoping for a national summit on Islamophobia, passing, you know, the bill for a national day of uh, remembrance and action on Islamophobia. And, you know, even if we work rather hard on some of these symbolic kind of discursive elements, I think Islamophobia is far too useful as a structuring paradigm for rationalizing, justifying all kinds of militarism, you know, the security and surveillance apparatus, um, you know, so that it's not just going to disappear because we change people's minds about it. Um, yeah. I mean, and also not to mention psychosexually stunted losers with no friends, prospects or joy in their life at all that that can use this as a as a way to say hey well i can feel at least a little bit better about myself it, right it gives it gives the state its meaning you know on certain levels like we were just talking about and it also provides individuals with who are lacking some kind of meaningful sense of identity and social position and you know yeah i mean due to the you know horrible economic hellscape that we all live in right which is which is just yeah. kind of just like we dip the whole thing in gasoline right we're just waiting for a match in a sense exactly and also you know what does 
consumer cap late consumer capitalist society really offer people in terms of meaningful social existence and life it's all about atomizing us and there are winners and losers in this what do you do with people who aren't going to be able to live you know the life of the one percent you know um so, you know, what it does is it gives people, and that's why I think it's these young people, Alexander Bissonnette and Nathaniel Veltman, you know, um, I don't know them and I can't completely psychoanalyze them, but, you know, it's basically the same reason why people, you know, went off to join ISIS, you know, it was like similarly, like, you know, the idea that you could be part of something that's bigger, that's got some grand historical significance. And this is what the clash of civilizations narrative has afforded. Samuel Huntington's thesis really, um, you know, provides essentially white supremacy. This is what I always say. It provides white supremacy with a foreign policy with a global articulation of like, well, what is our rationale? So you have the strange paradox of ultra nationalist white supremacist politics of, you know, extreme right wing movements that are usually very nationalist. They nonetheless can, you know, you know, develop an internationalist idiom through this idea of a kind of clash of civilizations of the West against Islam or China and we'll see you know actually if you look at the end of Samuel Huntington's essay Clash of Civilizations uh, that was published in Foreign Affairs in 1992 I think um, the last paragraph that concludes after he's defined the these very, very basic uh, you know civilizations and their differences with one another and he picks uh, quite a few really the concept makes sense for him as the West and then there are a couple of key civilizations that he sees as inimical uh, to the West uh, and culturally incompatible, one of which is, of course, the Islamic world and its long historic kind of uh, com competition with the West, you know, for dominance and China, Sin you know, S Sino okay. civilization. And he sure. basically- I mean, just an argues, insane oversimplification, but yeah. It is, sure. of course, yeah, it's totally, totally yeah. ridiculous. I mean, it, it's, 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 almost idiotic and yet it has a kind of compelling rationale because this category of civilization is something and different civilizations is something that has been inculcated in a long you know for a long time in our no, education. it's it's and it's been imbued with all kinds of like um, yeah. hidden hidden kind of meanings and values that, that you don't yeah. really see on the surface of them right we're talking when you when you talk about great quote-unquote civilizations that phrase isn't in and of itself is going to be fraught with all kinds of kind of political uh, positionalities that that are uns that are being um, obscured. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, basically, what he was trying to suggest and argue is that let's not imagine that um, these values that we hold that we try and you know universalize they're not universal because other people have other values from their civilization and you cannot change these entities at all that they're basically rock solid demarcations culturally between different peoples and so his great fear geostrategically that he expresses uh, is that the post-cold war condition will be you know very uh problematic for the u.s and the west as a as a whole if you see the Islamic civilization and China kind of developing some sort of rapprochement. And so that's what you can see right now is exactly that situation where we've had two decades of the global war on terrorism. Mm -hmm. 
And now we're moving into a much more clear confrontation with China. Mm. And so we are seeing anti-Asian racism as well. So I mean, it's, it's, it's off the yeah. charts, the anti-Asian racism in North America and elsewhere, completely off the charts. I think in Vancouver, it's up 900%. It's like insane. Yeah. yeah. And it would be there with or without the pandemic. And in fact, actually, the association of China with the pandemic as if it spread the pandemic deliberately, which mm. is the logic that's working in, you know, this kind of white supremacists. Uh, yeah. And the spoons are going to our bodies have become magnetized from the vaccine. I do want to talk about that, too, because I think I think people are really afraid to confront some of the, the realities here. Like for one for one thing. Um, a lot of people in the right wing, let's say, and probably in the national security apparatus uh, in the West, really want this to be China's Chernobyl. You know, they want this to be the yeah. event where it undermines confidence in their entire system, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But what they don't realize or what they're not admitting is that within China, this entire crisis has only buttressed support and confidence in the system. Of course. Literally everyone in China through this bullshit has been like, oh my God, thank God we're in China. Yeah. And we have people who are running shit properly and we're not yeah. one of these dysfunctional Western countries. Meanwhile, all these motherfuckers in the West who are just blissfully unaware of what domestic public opinion is in China, they have, they, you know, they don't even seek to find out what people within China think. They just assume, oh, this is going to undermine China globally. And it very well may in some aspects if... Let's say, for example, lab leak hypothesis, which I, I was personally lambasted for being open to last mm -hmm. year when when I you know heard scientists say, look, there's genetic markers that just indicate that this may be a component here or something to investigate more. Um, you know, I, I think I think people are just concerned about the potential volatility. You know, they, they just they don't want it to be that because they, they feel as though it'll make the situation just much worse in some way. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, meanwhile, you know, the the, the biomedical research uh, industry is completely globalized. You know, the lab in Wuhan was funded by all kinds of people from overseas. Yeah. You know, la leaks from these labs happen all the time. It's not as it's not as though it's a rare thing, really. Right. And that's why this kind of research has been banned in the past and definitely should be banned in the future. Um, and, you know, obviously, I stand against any kind of ridiculously irrational uh, xenophobia or anti-Asian mm -hmm. racism. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid to kind of try and hold the nuances of this question in my head. You know, it's, right. it's just it's strange to me how people just seem to really only be capable of, of one or two positions at a time. And you may be able to move them along. And even just it's almost like you're, people are almost more comfortable switching from something to its opposite than they are trying to figure out what's kind of going on in the middle. You know, <laughs> it's weird. It's well, like it's, like it's I'm, less clear, you know. Yeah. yeah. And less and it, definitive. And it requires a little bit more of you. I think also just part of it is also, and it ties into this, what you were talking about before with the atomization. And really, we can talk about the, the commodification of hatred. I mean, you know, people like Matt Taibbi have written about this with his book, Hate Inc. It's like, we are very much living in a world where people make money off of making us hate each other yeah. on social media and elsewhere. And, um, you know, you, you'll see this as soon as you go online and post anywhere outside of the left-wing bubble. Right. Um, you'll just, you'll just, and, and people are finding, it's almost as though people are, we're, you know, in terms of being able to commit yourself to something greater to give your life some meaning. I'm, I'm wondering if we're actually reaching a point depressingly where the thing that's giving you the higher meaning is just hatred of others. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like that's not even an ideology. 
No, it's just an experience that, uh, you know, reinforces in antagonism your own sense of self-identity through the sense that you have to protect yourself. So that's that mm. climate of fear, that climate of suspicion and hatred that is so central to the identity formation, it seems, of white identity, white nationalist identity, you know, in the way that it's being configured. And of course, there are other extreme identitarian, you know, you see this basically the the, the mirror of this is, you know, when you get a kind of ISIS uh, sort of radicalized um, jihadist uh, sense of, and basically that they accept the Huntington thesis as well. In fact, actually, both of these sides agree that, you know, there is a West and there is an Islamic world and they are in necessary and inevitable conflict with one another. It's just which side are they on and who do they want to win? You know, so they, they accept the same kind of logic. Um, and that's unfortunately, it seems to be much more the dialectic of that division seems to be driving the engine, you know, of history in our age with this polemical partisan polarization around these hatreds that you were just mentioning that almost it doesn't really even matter although i do think that there is a history and a genealogy to mm. you know the white settler you know um identity or the whatever is at root of this sort of west uh, identity and you can see it most clearly i think in some ways in Qu quebec because it is a division within the white settler mm. uh, community. Yeah, it's, it's like a colonized country within a colonized country. Yeah, so yeah. so their their a sense of their positionality is that they're more vulnerable to uh, you know uh, cultural change, um, undermining the political kind of basis of a community that they're organizing and mobilizing cultural difference around, linguistic difference around, and as a result, they feel and express the threats that are, I think, you know, held much more widely in Canada, you know, about these anxieties of demographic change and... Um, it's anxieties about we're going to lose all the awesome shit we fucking have. We're, we're running the show. Like, yeah. white Canadians have license to do whatever we want. We have access to whatever we want. We have even access to this pretentious idea that we're wonderful people for being oh so liberal. Right. Meanwhile, there's a fucking mass grave in my backyard. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really uh, the, the the hypocrisy. I, I really feel like if can Canada needs to shed its skin like a snake, mm. this this skin of 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 faux liberalism. That's um, a very interesting image, you know, because yeah. you could start new. It's not denying that that skin was there. It's there, but you you separate yourself from it and you say we need to begin something you know different. I don't know if history can work like that, but at least imaginatively. Mm there needs to be some kind of new consciousness and new politics and new sense of what is our Canadian community that mm. puts us in affiliation with one another that, uh, you know, uh, uh, builds upon our solidarity with one another as, as, as human beings rather than pitting us against one another mm. um, in, in this kind of uh, struggle of, of cultural purity um that they're so worried about it. I, mean, I mean i think the power dimension when you said that they're afraid to be losing the privileges and the position that they you know that they've enjoyed i think you see that so evidently with the way in which bill 21 specifically targets emblems of religious uh identification and practice for people in positions of authority teachers you know police 
yeah. policemen and women. Um, yeah. You know, uh, people working as in as public defenders or in the prosecution. You know, basically in the court system. Yeah, so I mean, we're talking about the halls of power. Emblems, you know, yeah, yeah, the halls of power. They need yeah. to be. They need to be. A, they need to look a certain way. Yeah, and Otherwise, certain people need to walk right. into those places and say, "Oh, that looks right. That's great." And then other people, it's fine if they walk in there and they say, "This looks completely alien to me. It doesn't seem right to me at all." Right. Like we can't, we can't accept if we're a truly multicultural nation. If if that bullshit cultural mosaic thing I was taught in school mm. were actually true, yeah, we would do things like have our public square bear the emblems of all the cultures present, respect all the cultures present, and have people actually collaborating and cooperating as equals. Yeah, and I'm really nowhere near that. And where I I feel like we continually try and do the bare minimum to avoid having to do the really hard work in the long run. Yeah. I even feel like I'm guilty of it too. And I've been, I've been thinking lately, you know, every time I post on Facebook about something political, I should make a rule that I also have to call my MP and tell them mm -hmm. about it, you know, because this, this thing of like posting online and, and, you know, no, even just doing a podcast activism. about it. Yeah. I think it's activism. You get that little dopamine hit, yeah. you know, you get a couple of likes, a couple of shares, you feel as okay well people agree with me but we're really you know it's it's not enough it's nowhere no. near enough and and no. when when nowhere near enough is all you're doing you're you're only you're moving backwards is what you're doing honestly yeah 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 that's sobering i think we have a lot of work to do you really do i know honestly adnan you've got You've been on Zoom for hours and hours and hours. I want to be mindful of your time. Also, you know, I do this a lot of my work as well. I say, oh, we're running up, you know, against the clock here. Does anyone have any questions before we break? Um, <laughs> uh, we're going to be doing more fun episodes. I don't think every we episode will. of the show is going to be about the various genocidal tendencies of Canada. It but just so happens that we've been confronting it in, in yeah. spades the last this the last few weeks. Just horrifying. Like, a, a, it's a crime. What happened this last Sunday in London is like a crime against the notion of like a fucking family. Mm. You know, that's what gets me is, is like, yeah. like how, how does every Muslim family walking down a fucking street in Canada feel, you know, in well, the wake I of can, this? I can tell you, you know, I had to, I had a dental appointment downtown a couple of days ago and um, my wife was supposed to pick me up, but uh, she wasn't able to. So I thought, I thought, well, I'll just walk part way and text her and say, I'm, I'm, you know, getting closer somewhere where it's easier to pick me up. And, so on and there's some deserted stretches of road you know across a causeway a sort of a little bit of a highway type thing and i thought wow this was kind of foolish wasn't it like you know what if there are copycats what if people are inspired by this i mean you know i'm not wearing a turban and i don't have a really really long beard but you know if, yeah, i could be seen and identified and and you know this is well, something this is how, that was done how casually. Operates, you know? Yeah, it, and like I would have people... not. I wouldn't have thought about it at all yeah. before. But I suddenly was thinking about it, and I uh, was definitely worried when my son said he wanted to walk out again, sort of along a kind of main road to the basketball court by himself. And I thought, well, maybe I should drive him. Maybe I should take him myself. And then you know I had to squelch that because I don't want him actually. I want him to be careful about things that he should be, but I don't want to inculcate in him a sense of fear and paranoia that he doesn't belong. He can't be out in public and be who he is. This is mm. the vicious and, 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 and subtle way in which such an event has and can have lasting repercussions just on how 
people feel themselves in society, their place and their position. And that was the point, I think. That was the point, was to really undermine people's confidence um, that they belonged and to spread this kind of fear and insecurity uh, about your about your status. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's 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 an everyday thing, you know. Um, anyone that's been in a car accident knows that it's an inherently surreal. I mean, not that this was a car accident, but um, you know, uh, you see, you have to walk down the street every day. You know, it's not as though it's not as though it's it's something you're not encountering all the time. I mean, maybe one final point I might make is: uh, Do you share my opinion that the Canadian news media, although I do only uh, consume it in small bites, really really has a long way to go to be able to like process these kinds of events. And, and there's a deep, 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 pathetically cowardly conservatism at the heart of, of, of many of our major media institutions, including places like the CBC, which is a government funded news service. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid so, uh, because I did several interviews um, and, you know, for television or for print, they do a five, 10, 15 minute discussion with you. And then they'll include one or two quotes and they inevitably draw the most anodyne, banal, uncontroversial things that don't provoke people to think further, uh, unless that's all you say, unless the only thing you say, and they're committed that they're gonna, they need this quote. If you say anything that even remotely resembles conventional wisdom, the platitudes, the pious uh, homilies or anything like that, that's exactly what they will use and they will find a way to exclude confronting any of the deeper issues that you may have raised. And that's just a habit that I've noticed every time I've had a chance to speak with the media about important, mm -hmm. serious issues, that that's the approach. So it's really more about uh, bromides that give people a sense of what is the norm? What is the conventional sort of wisdom that supports mm. a status quo? Yeah, how can we go back to sleep? Basically, yeah, that's exactly. what the Canadian media does. I really right. feel don't like wake it. up on this. This is yeah. like this will pass, and we'll cover something else the next day. And you know, yeah, a deep. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but it's just cowardice of the worst kind. I just, I, if you're a fucking journalist, how how dare you be engaged in that kind of activity? It's just, I mean, I know it's not uncommon. But I do find it particularly disgusting, especially at times like this. So if you're listening and you're a journalist in Canada, please try and do a little better. Indeed. Anyways. Um, okay, well, Adnan, I'm so grateful. I've had many chances to talk with you a lot recently. Please feel free to reach out at any time. Much love to you and your family. Uh, I know it's a difficult time for them and for you and for the community at large. And um, I really admire your courage and, and the energy you show in, in helping us to discuss and, and try and disseminate some of our thoughts on these topics. Um, it's, uh, it's really beneficial to me personally. And I think I'm, I'm, I know the listeners really appreciate, appreciate it a lot. Um, I've heard many people on many occasions say they could listen to you all day. So that's probably why you end up on zoom calls for eight hours at a time. <laughs> well, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you, uh, as always a great conversation that, uh, really stimulates my thinking. And frankly, you know, it's a sad time for Canada as a whole. We all should be feeling this. I know so many of your listeners, uh, must as well. There's got to be better ways uh, for us to work together and try and ameliorate the situation. And um, thankfully, 
these kinds of conversations can at least give people some perspective and hopefully lead to that kind of action. So yeah. thank you, Isaac, for your podcast and for what you've been doing. My pleasure. And remember, everybody, what every post on Facebook or Instagram, you got to call your member of parliament or congressman and give them a give them a fucking earful. OK, new resolution, new resolution. We'll all, all hail the new humanitude. <laughs> OK, Adnan, you have a nice night. Get some rest and I'll thank catch you. up with you real soon. OK, bye bye. Bye bye.